0: Who inspires us? Perfect, impeccable, gifted, overachievers, or imperfect yet persistent, problematic, yet persevering, full of risk, yet resilient fighter? We are inspired by those who overcame adversity more than those who easily own prosperity. For instance, I am impressed with uh, Jimmy Butler. You know who Jimmy Butler is? Show the picture. Jimmy Butler, the one who stopped my Lakers from winning their long overdue NBA championship. Now, back to me. I wanna, uh, I came to Los Angeles in 1981. At the time, there are two people Thrilled the entire city. The one is a 19 years old Mexican muchacho nicknamed Toro, Fernando Valenzuela, the phenom who ushered the Dodgers into World Series. He was awesome. He's a breaking ball, broke all the record. And the Magic Johnson. And who can forget the magic that he displayed on basketball court. Now, So I'm a a first Dodgers fan, second Lakers fan. But you know what? In this NBA series, after reading an article about Jimmy Butler, now I'm rooting for Miami Heat. Why? Jimmy Butler's life story is a movie-worthy inspirational. (coughs) He was born in Houston. His father abandoned the family when he was an infant. And his mother was not very caring either. When he was 13 years old, his mother told him, I don't like the look of you. You got to go. That's how Jimmy Butler was kicked out of his own house, not doing anything bad, and became a homeless. Youth, aren't you grateful that your mother is not Mrs. Butler? You should be grateful to God today that your parents are keeping you. And then he bounced between the homes of his uh, friends. At the Tomball High School in Houston, he met a friend named uh, Jordan Leslie. And Joe, they, Jordan Leslie's family took him in. And uh, the interesting fact is uh, Leslie's family also is not a, well, uh, a well-off family. Uh, between his mother and, and the stepfather, they had uh, six other children. And then they, they took the Butler, uh, Jimmy in. And Jimmy said, they accepted me into their family. It's not because of, uh, we play basketball together, but because Mrs. Uh, Lambert, Leslie's mother, was uh, just a loving person. She just did uh, stuff like that. I can believe it. So Jimmy Butler graduated from high school. Even though he was MVP of team a senior year, but he was not noticed by uh, 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 Division One schools. So he went to Tyler, Texas, their junior junior uh, junior uh, junior college. Do you remember Tyler? We supposed to be Tyler at the end of the October, but because of pandemic, we are now we are not going to annual retreat. Uh, Tyler Junior College, he became one of the best junior college basketball players, and finally, Marquette University recruited him. In 2011, he was uh, drafted by Chicago Bulls. And then he changed his team from Chicago Bulls to Minnesota uh, Timberwolves, Philadelphia 76ers, and then now Miami Heat. One of the main reasons that his frequent changing of team was that he did not tolerate any lazy, undevoted teammate, and he was a direct and confrontational. Butler was known for his hard work ethic. Every day, regardless of where he was, even when he was traveling, he gets up at 4 a.m. and does weightlifting for two hours. Did you see that uh, Jimmy Butler, that, uh, that chiseled muscle? That was not a genetic. That's not a natural that took two hours of weightlifting every day. Well, yeah, that that's, that that yeah. Now I, I look at his body differently. Now, and then he practices shooting all morning, and that afternoon he do the team pro- He does the team practice. His talent was made and harnessed rather than naturally endowed. Last Friday, game five of an NBA final, Jimmy Butler rested only 48 seconds and played the rest of a 47 minute 12 seconds. At the end of the game, he said, he and his teammate left everything on the court. He said he left everything on the court. You know, that's what I want to say at the end of my life. You know, that's what I hope every one of us say at the end of this pandemic. Amen? It is not a tremendously talented people, but those who tried and prevailed who challenged us, encouraged us to face our own adversity. That's why we're studying 2 Corinthians. Paul's letter written one of his most difficult times of his life and ministry. In his very hard and often hopeless time, Apostle Paul shares with us how high truth of God helped him out. So with that, let me introduce you the context to today's text and its context. Today and next week, we're going to study 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And the main topic of this chapter, or chapter 4, is how to continue and keep our courage and commitment to God's calling. How to continue, how to keep on going, keep going, with God against all adversities. Our passage comes as a sandwich by two verses. Two verses in the verse, uh, verse 1 and verse 16. Therefore, since through God's mercy, we have this ministry, we do not lose a heart. And then later verse 16, therefore, we do not lose a heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed, Every day. Now, we do not lose our heart. That's the book end of chapter 4. That's the inclusio of the passage. What discouraged Paul to almost lose his heart? The Greek word to, for, to, to lose a heart means to be faint or to be weary. Weary. Paul felt like giving up his ministry with the Corinthians. Once again, I thank God for Paul's honest confession here. Because if a great apostle Paul felt discouraged and worn out, I, another Paul, far less small Paul, Kim, shouldn't feel too bad about feeling my own inadequacy and struggles in ministry. It is amazing that Paul, the greatest apostle in the New Testament, was disrespected, doubted, and resisted by his own congregation. Why did the Corinthians misbehave like that? One of the reasons, which we will find out more later, was that they were bewitched by some itinerant or traveling Jewish teachers who are so flamboyant that they call themselves super apostles, while they are calling Paul substandard apostle. Can you believe? the Corinthians thought their founding pastor, the great apostle Paul, to be less than these fleshy, rash Jewish preachers? You know, pastors usually understand this. Often, congregations of local churches, they have more positive passive and ready responses to the messages of new preachers than their own pastors. Who's preaching is too familiar to them? It's like you are kind of uh, bored or tired of your own home food and you thrive with a eat out or take out food. You know, I'm not against the take out food, but too much, too many take out is not only expensive, but also it endangers your balanced diet. So we are looking for balance. Now, with that, let me read out the today's text, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 to 12. But we have this treasure in the jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always given, being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that His life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life at work in you. Here, Paul expresses his thought creatively once again with a common life analogy of a storage in his time. According to Paul, we are containers of God's great treasure. By nature, we are cheap and expendable like a clay pot. But by God's grace, we are cherished and actually expensive, priceless because of God's stores his everlasting love. And power in us. Here in the jar of clay, Paul wants us to see the grace and power of God in four paradoxes, and each paradox reveals our privilege, our prestige, our power, and our promise in Christ. Amen. So as we reflect on the uh, paradoxes. Through the jar of clay, I pray that all of us realize our own paradoxical life of love and power in Christ. So, paradox one is about privilege. Paul said, I mean, paradox one is about we are weak but wonderful because God made us fearfully and wonderfully. Paul compares Christian life and mission to jars of clay with a great treasure. We are paradox. Human beings, we are weak, but wonderful. And our weakness is uh, compared to clay jars. What is a material of a clay jar? Nothing but dirt. It's a basically hardened mud. Hardened mud. Some New Testament scholars think that a Paul's analogy originated not just from the common culture of his time, but much older, from, his, from the Hebrew scripture. Because Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says that we are made of dust. The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, or sometimes the spirit of life, spirit of God, and he became a living being or living soul. From this passage, we have a common funeral prayer. Those of you have been to burial service, you remember. Almighty God, we now commit so-and-so's body to the ground, earth to earth, ash to ashes, and the dust to dust, until the day of our resurrection in the name of Christ. You know, God not only made us with the dust, but also made us in His image. So we are weak like a dust. Uh, Side note, you know, men are much uh, made of a weaker material than women. Women made of a bone. Men made of dust. So that explains why men cannot overcome women. And that ladies, especially wives, have mercy on your husband in 50s or midlife. We're getting weaker. You're getting stronger. And, uh, you know, if you show mercy to your husband, God will give you more mercy. Amen? Coming back. God made us not only with the dust, but made us in His image. Yes. Take a cornerstone Bible study. You will learn the full impact, I mean, uh, magnitude of that blessing. And the Psalm, let me read a uh, Psalm 139. It said that for you created us, my inmost being, you need me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that fully well. So now, human beings are paradoxical beings. We are weak, but we are wonderful. Materially, we are weak. But relationally, we are more than wonderful. We are the only physical creature in the entire universe with a divine potential. God made us in His image. God breathed His Spirit into us. Blaise Pascal, French mathematician, inventor of a calculus, some say, and the philosopher, expressed this important truth in his book, *Pensée*, He said Christianity deserves a respect for it renders honest yet hopeful view of humanity. All other human religions and philosophy makes a humans either too good or too bad, too optimistic or too pessimistic. For instance, uh, Platonism makes humans almost like God. And uh, But others, such as uh, communism or material atheism, make a human beings nothing but another animal species. Whereas uh, Christianity shows a realistic yet revelatory picture of humanity. So let me quote a, a, a passage from Panzer: Man is only reed, the weakest in the nature, but he is a thinking reed. There is no need for the whole universe to take up arms to crush him, a vapor, a drop of water. I may add a small pathogen in the air, the size of the, the one point one point one micron, one thousandth size of a human hair is enough to kill him. But even if the universe were to crush him, man would not still be nobler than his slayer because he knows he is a dying and advantages the universe has over him. But universe knows none of this. Pascal says the human beings are greater than universe, the physical universe, because we have a God-given ability and gift called thinking. You know, philosophers appreciate this thoughtful observation of Blaise Pascal. The famous, you know, dictum or saying of Rene Descartes, you know, aka the father of a modern philosophy, that I think therefore I am. You heard of it, right? You know, actually has a Christian foundation. Human rationality is a God-given blessing. We should never take for granted our mind. We should take a good, stewardship about our privilege to reason, the gift of thinking. Our mind came from God's creative blessing. So that's why Bible said, love your God with all your heart and all your mind. And I must tell, I must remind you, spiritual growth means transformed mind. Renew, transform life with a renewed mind. We cannot grow spiritually without renewing our mind. Let us stop trashing our precious mind, especially in this pandemic with a mindless entertainment, but let's care for it with God's meaty nourishment. Now, the second paradox, next paradox, the most obvious message of our past today is about being a cheap but cherished. That's the second paradox. We are cheap, but we are cherished. We are expendable, but we are everlasting. Here Paul was comparing Christian life and mission as a jar of clay with a great treasure. Clay jars are very overabundant in the ancient Near Eastern. They are common, cheap, temporary, and expendable. If your clay jar break, people didn't, uh, broke. people didn't try to fix it. They just discard it and replace it with another one. So Paul did not say a great treasure is contained in a, some kind of a, a, a gold box or beautifully crafted Gracian urns. The treasure of a gospel message is a held in a clay jars. This is how Paul pictures himself. And this is how Paul said we must consider ourselves. Paul didn't say, was unique uh, a work of art or masterpiece worthy of a highest value. Paul simply said, I am a clay jar among so many clay jars. But I am special because the special treasure, the most important treasure called gospel that I'm carrying. So significance of his life and our life comes from not the container itself, but, con- but the content from the content now question i have for us is this who put the this expensive cherished treasure in a cheap clay pot when when we give precious gift to somebody we care about do we put our gifts in just any container do you give your wedding gift to your friend in a brown bag or plastic bag we know that uh, companies spend the tens of millions of dollars to design and develop a very uh, nice-looking, exquisite you know, container to store their product for their customers. So, to make an illustration, let me show you this. I brought this. Look at me. This is Apple Box. Apple, uh, what is this? Uh, Air. Which I bought more than five beginning of our church about almost six years ago. It served this function. I have my Apple computer here. It has nothing. It has nothing inside. I mean, you know, just, uh, but you know, I still have it. Why? Because it looks so nice. You know, it's so fancy, even though it served its original function. It doesn't offer me anything, but it's just aesthetic beauty. So it takes up unnecessary space in my crowded library, and uh, my Jamie was telling me to throw away, and I cannot discard it. And I feel like somebody should pay for it. I I I I I wish the Apple company, you know, pay pay pay. Pay, buy back this beautiful box. This beautiful box. Look at it. Look at it. Now, can you imagine? Apple company, app, Apple. Com, you know, Apple, apples, they sell their latest laptop or best laptop in a brown, you know, disposable brown bag like this. And they say, here is your $1,500 computer. Take it home. Here is you have. Here you go. You know, I know some people are waiting for, you know, uh, iPhone number, number, number 12. You know, they just put that in the plastic bag and take it. You know, what company? You know, who stores their precious expensive product in a cheap container? And Paul is saying, that's our God. God of Jesus Christ. He did that. Actually, Jesus Christ himself packaged himself with a flesh of common, actually less than common, Galilean Jewish man. When you take a Livingstone Bible study, you learn the meaning of Galilean Jewish. You know, today's verse 7, it starts with actually the word but. But is a word of contrast. What was Paul contrasting? If you look at it, verse 6, Paul said, For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. The treasure God stores in us is the light of the gospel, the glory of the gospel that gives us the light to overcome darkness. And then Paul said, this is the greatest gift. God placed in the clay jar. So we look cheap, but brothers and sisters, we are not cheap because what God placed in us makes us so expensive. By grace of God, we are not common. We are indispensable. We are critical as a salt and light of the world in Jesus Christ. Now, let us find out why God stores such an expensive and priceless treasure in a such a cheap container like us. Paul said, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. To reveal God's surpassing power. That's the next paradox three. Paradox three, if a paradox one is about privilege, paradox two is about prestige, paradox three is about the power. Verse four and eight, Paul said, we are compressed On every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Knocked down, but not knocked out. Paul is saying that we are fragile, but we are unbreakable. We are fragile, but we are unbreakable. To express that we are fragile, but unbreakable, because of God's powerful grace, Paul used four sets of extreme suffering and extraordinary uh, sustaining grace. So look at the verse 8 and 9. Yeah, look at the verse 8 and 9. And listen to my, uh, listen to my explanation. In the first day, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. And the renowned and old, uh, New Testament scholar of all generation, Merrill Tennant, he expressed it. We are squeezed, but we are not squashed. We are squeezed but we are not squashed. That's, what, that's a beautiful translation. You know, we are compressed, but we are not crushed. And then second uh, set is that uh, we are perplexed but not driven to despair. And here, actually in Greek text, Paul is a playing, a rhyming wordplay. play. That is an uh, mani and ex non manai. So second word is a sort of intensifying the first. So various translation attempt uh, attempts have been made to capture the word play in this phrase. So some say, we are at loss but not at loss. Another one said we are in despondency yet not in despair. Another one said we are confused but not confounded. And then once again, I like the Tennis, you know, uh, a translation. He said, we are bewildered but not. Be fuddled. We are bewildered, but not befuddled. And then next phrase: We are persecuted, but not destroyed. Uh, we are not. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. Okay. The word persecuted actually means a hunted down. In the Bible, Paul was hunted down many times by his adversaries. For instance, in Acts chapter twenty-three. When Paul visited Jerusalem for the last time, there were 40 Jewish men who took a religious vow not to drink or eat until they killed Paul. <laughs> Can you believe that? <laughs> and then by grace of God and, uh, safety, uh, and the escort of a Roman centurion, Paul was safe. I wonder what happened to you know, those guys who took that vow. Fourth, The intensity of a paradox now peaks in the final expression, struck down but not destroyed. Here the struck down means struck down by a weapon. Simply put, Paul was whacked, but he was not destroyed. Rather, he was quickly back on his feet, and he continued to serve God. Now look at me. Another word, Paul said, he was knocked down, but not knocked out. Knocked down, but not knocked out. He was compressed, but he was not crushed. He was perplexed, but he was not in despair. He was hunted, but he was not forsaken. He was knocked down, but he was not knocked out. You know, these words of Paul are not rhetorical or metaphorical. It is real. It's really, materially, physically happened to him. Look at the 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 to 27, and see the actual details of Paul's suffering. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, let me read a little bit 23. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received From the Jews, the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with a rod, once I was pelted with a stone, three times I was shipwrecked, I spent a night and day in the open sea. And I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, danger at sea, danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled, have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. According to Paul, he was fragile, but he was never broken. So we are fragile, but we are unbreakable. That's our supernatural power. Our strength comes from God's sustaining grace and then saving power. That our strength does not come from ourselves because we are just a clay pot. Paul is not destroyed, not because he's so strong, but because he he knew that what he carries is so precious, so valuable, so glorious. So he could not stop. You know, parents understand this better. You know, when uh, somebody becomes a parent, you got supernatural power. As a single person or as a just you know adult, you just, you know, you are who you are. But when you become a parent, you have a supernatural power. For your child... You will go beyond, above whatever your own personal care. Yes, Victor Hugo was absolutely right when he said, Women are are weak, but mothers are strong. In a man, men are reckless, but fathers are responsible. That's the difference. Men are reckless, but fathers are responsible. That's what the power of God does to us. We have to recognize this. Being a child of God and receiving God's supernatural power does not take away our fragility. We are still being fragile. But we have power to sustain our fragility. When all the pressures come outside, we have a bigger power inside to protect we have a great love of God. They make us to stand. You know, that's the difference between Paul and other Greek philosophers, such as uh, uh, stoic philosophers. You know, stoic philosophers, in their writing, we also see how much suffering they've gone through. But they rarely admitted their weakness or frustration as uh, Paul did in his letters. They used their affliction to Promote their stoic virtues. They brag about their calmness, logical posture, so-called apatheia, the transcendent spirit. For instance, Epictus, you know, he believed that difficulties show what man made, what men really are. They in the, what they endured, demonstrate their true grit and moral constancy. For Paul, hardship. Do not disclose what humans are made of, but what God's power is like. While the wise and sage claims to know his own strength, and full of self-confidence, and because of his self-sufficiency, Paul never boasted his own stamina, or self-discipline, or fortitude. Paul bragged differently. Notice today, Paul bragged about God's unbreakable power and unfailing love. Along with the God's God-sustaining power and shepherding presence in his heart, Paul bragged that because of a God-sustaining love. I am determined to do God's will for good, you know, forever. Paul's realization of God's unbreakable power and the preciousness of the gospel led him to his undivided, unstoppable. Uh, devotion to his uh, life mission you know this kind of reminds me of an old movie uh, i saw i don't know some of you still remember this movie you know the m uh, night shamalan do you guys remember the the director of a sixth sense the film unbreakable do you remember the movie there's a movie called the unbreakable the movie starts with a train wreck everybody on the board died on train died about hundred people, except one, they be done. Not only survives the wreck, he walks away without a scratch. So instead of being relieved by his own good fortune, he was troubled troubled by this remarkable outcome. He has a little bit of a survivor's guilt. Why was he? Why? Why was I unharmed? What does it mean? And then he met somebody. Uh, comic book collector named Elijah, and then he, 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 so he has a totally opposite condition of uh, David. And through that, David realized what? He has a supernatural power that he, nothing can break him. Nothing can break him. He has this external gift. So what does he do once he, he realizes that he has an unbreakable, you know, power, unbra- his body is unbreakable. What does he do? He starts using that power to help others or punish the evil. David then struggles to understand, but once he accepts his remarkable ability, he also accepts the destiny that goes with him. He is a unbreakable. With an unbreakable power, He's, he brings uh, justice to the world. That's the final paradox. Paul is saying that e- even though I'm fragile, even though I'm a weak clay pot and I have a lot of crack, but you know what? My crack reveals the light of gospel. Gospel shines through my crack. By the way, you know, that's how God's gospel speaks to other people and other people see in you know, the light of God in us you know when everything is well and we're doing well and we we you know we every plan of ours is you know is, is coming through and then we are so you know we are we are so called healthy and wealthy and everything is a prosperous and we talk about God you know what it doesn't grab what people's attention but when we are in trouble when we are Almost unbearable affliction, and then we somehow still smile, with the hope of God's love in Christ. That's when people realize, what does it, what made him, what made him or her say that? What's that? That's when world pay attention. That's the paradox number four: we die but we live. Paul said, verse 10, we always carry around, let's look at the verse 10, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be also revealed in our mortal body, so that death is at work in us, but life at work in you. Now, Paul is saying this, with this unbreakable power, I'm dying every day and actually I'm killing my flesh every day so that my spirit lives and gospel lives in you. That's what Paul is saying. And here, Paul is saying, I accept the suffering along that comes along with this gospel. I take all the pri- I, I paid all the price and cost for storing this gospel and the sharing this gospel to whoever wants to receive it. For that I'm willing to even die. Paul said his suffering as an aim. Paul said he doesn't mind suffers. So he doesn't mind suffering for Christ and his church. Now, Paul said here repeatedly, three times in this passage, verse 10 and 12, 12 death. Death, death in me, and life, life is in you. Now, you know, the interesting thing is that Paul used a, a different word for death here. You know, usual Greek word for death is a thanatos. But Paul used the word necrosis. Let me show you the difference between necrosis and thanatos. Necrosis literally means dying or is a deadness. It actually describes, it's a negative term to describe death. It denotes a deadness, dreadfulness of death, undesirable aspect of death. Whereas thanatos is a neutral term to describe death. That's why we have the English word like euthanasia. Euthanasia literally means good death. Good death. You in Greek means, you know, euthanatos. That's euthanasia. Now, you know Greek people. They don't say "you necros." They don't say "you necros." They don't say "you." You don't use a necros with a good. It's like uh, using like a good murder. There's no such a thing as a good murder. Murder is all bad. Here, New Testament scholars think that by using the this term necrosis, Paul was implying all the ramifications of uh, being a Christian in the first century Greco-Roman world, especially Roman Empire, because Christianity was an illegal religion. As an adherent or followers of an illegal religion, you don't have government protection. Romans were very tolerant to many religions, especially new religions. Throughout the Roman history, you heard, you know, they were they are very pro-religion. They are very much they they, they actually tried to make Roman Empire a religiously, uh, religiously pluralistic society. But when it comes to Christianity, Romans were merciless. Why? Christianity is a politically provocative. Christianity, they intentionally changed the Romans, you know, dictum, the Caesar is the Lord. Caesar is a courier in Greek. And they intentionally change that Jesus is the Creator. Jesus is the Lord. That's why First Corinthians twelve three, Paul said, "Unless it's by the Holy Spirit, no one can confess Jesus is the Lord." Because saying is a Jesus is the Lord politically committing treason against the Caesar. So Paul is Paul is well aware of all the social political ramifications that Christian has to suffer when they proclaim the gospel, and Paul is saying that. I don't mind uh, carrying the necros in my life because I want you to have a life of Christ. Life that Christ is a life, the zoe. It's not a bias. It's not a biological life. It's a real life. It's a jestful, joyful life. Zoe is in you. This is why Paul said in Philippians 1, For me to die is a gain and live is Christ. And Paul said earlier in the first letter, in Galatians 2.20, that I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in my body, I live by faith in the Son of God and who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what Paul was saying here. So Paul said, verse 12, death is at work in, at work in us, but life is at work with you. That's the life of Christians. We suffer and toil so others can, the, the others can see and see the Christ and the taste the goodness of God, brothers and sisters. This is, you know, immigrant parents, immigrant family understand the Paul's verse here. Death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. You know, many immigrants... They, they actually embody this truth in their own way. They sacrifice The first generation, they sacrifice their life so that the second generation, their children, can succeed. And I have to tell you, we are immigrants of God's kingdom. We are more, more than citizens of uh, this country or earthly state. We represent Christ. We, are, we have a dual citizenship. Actually, it is not a symmetrical duality. We have our first loyalty is not the state in mean, the United States of America. Our first loyalty is a Christ and is a kingdom. I want to tell you clearly when you vote this November, vote according to your faith. Not according to whatever, you know, partisan politics. Vote for to glorify and honor Christ. Don't vote according to your economic, social, economic values. We all stand before God for every decision we make, including these critical elections. We, first, we are the immigrants of God's kingdom, and we suffer and toil so others can see Christ in us. Let me close. Container's honor is its content. Value of a clay pot is decided by what it contains. Content is all the glory, not container. And the good news is, I am carrying the greatest treasure. I am representing good and great God. In this pandemic, we are challenged in many ways. But these challenges can be a crack through which we can show the glory of God. Let me end with a quote from a, a French Roman Catholic thinker named Fenelon, and he said this, God never makes you suffer unnecessarily. He intends for your suffering to heal and purify you. The hand of God hurts you as little as he can. Do not waste your suffering. Let suffering accomplish what God wants it to Uh, To in your life, never get so hard that you suffer for no reason and for no purpose. Dear brothers and sisters, let us use this pandemic once again to purify our heart and our faith and to strengthen our trust in God. Let's pray.